looked like a blast, didn't it? Everything except the snakes. Not doing snakes. <laughs> Everything else is okay. If you have worship folder, and your worship folder is an outline, it's got a, a, a few fill-ins, but there's um, some verses there that we'll be looking at, and there's a bunch of blank on the back just in case God says something that you need to write down or you need to doodle or whatever um, else needs to happen. That's perfectly okay. <sighs> I'm shocked. I'm pleasantly shocked because all last night, all I could think of was, oh, God has really used this message in my life this week. And I really, I, I like it. And it's like, I don't care if anybody else likes it. It's, I, I like it. And there's going to be nobody there tomorrow. <laughs> and then I was reminded of something that this is one of the first times that I have been a part of a church where the majority of people do not look for reasons not to go. They look for ways to go. And that's exciting. So I'm thrilled to see you all here. I, I know that I, somebody warned me not to talk about snow anymore because every time I talk about it from the pulpit, something happens. But I have to share this. Um, I, don't, I haven't heard the official totals or what's happened with the snowstorm. I know it's way worse in the cities. But as of yesterday, the biggest Twin Cities April snow ever, April 13th and 14th, 1983, 35 years ago. Most of you don't remember that because you like, weren't even born at that time. The airport is where they measured, even though it's usually way more than that. The airport measured 13.6 inches of snow during that storm. The Metrodome collapsed for the third time. 400 schools, over 400 schools closed. The University of Minnesota closed. The airport shut down. For the thir only the third time in over 20 years, there was no mail pickup or delivery. And a young kid's parents with a wedding cake in their trunk got snowed in on the way from Ohio to Minnesota because they closed the roads and they got snowed in at a motel with the wedding cake in the trunk. I know that because it was my parents. <laughs> Tomorrow will be April 16th, 35 years ago. That snowstorm was 35 years ago. God just said, anniversary present, Tim. <laughs> and 35 years ago, the same thing happened. But I am here to say that tomorrow, it doesn't matter to me. I'm celebrating 35 years with the love of my life. By the way, she was two when we got married. <laughs> and so as much as I, I'm ready to be on my bike and no more of this, it was still kind of just fun reliving the, the panic that we had back then, two days before the wedding, to see the snow and to get the call from my parents. There's no cell phone, so they call from the motel phone. We're stuck. The road's closed. The wedding cake's in the trunk. And it's like, oh my goodness, we're starting good here. But out of little beginnings can come great things. So anyhow, speaking of that, great thing happened. We talked about last week. We're in a series with a, that's going to hope to answer a question that many people have. Many of you might have that question. You might not verbalize it. Um, but what's the big deal about church? Maybe you know people that have that. Maybe you've had that question. So we started this last week, and we talked, we talked about the churches, you know, their grand opening, their opening day, the big start, the very first day of the church. If you didn't hear that, you can go back to iloveourchurch.com and 
download that and listen to that. But I have a question for you. Um, and I want to know how many people you can name that we are like almost completely certain that those people were crucified. How many people can you name that were crucified? Really, literally physical crucified. Some of the older people here are not saying it, but I know they know it. And as soon as I say it, they go, oh, yeah. There was Spartacus. And if you're, if you're old enough, you've seen the movie. And if you, if you want fun, go watch it. It's an ancient movie. It's like from the 60s, I think. Um, Spartacus was, he used to be a gladiator. And the movie's not like 100% accurate, but, but here's what they know happened. He was a gladiator. And um, he wanted to, there was so many slaves in Rome at that time. There was like millions. There was far more slaves than there were not slaves. And he wanted to, to free them. He, wanted to, he led this rebellion. And Rome wanted to, to squash this rebellion. And they captured him. And they crucified him. And we know that. And we know that because Rome wanted us to know that. Because they wanted that to be a deterrent to anybody else. They were scared to death that these slaves, if they really did revolt, if they really did gather behind somebody, it would not go well for them. And so they crucified Spartacus. And I think, if I, I, I read on this, but I've forgotten already. I think it's like 6,000 people or something like that that were with him, they crucified. But they lined the road from Rome to this town with crosses that they crucified these people on. So as you were going to Rome from this town, that's what you saw, and they just left them there to rot. But we know that Spartacus was crucified because Roman historians wanted us to know that. And so they reported that, regardless of how you know, perfectly accurate it is. But my question is, how did the name Jesus and his story make it out of the first century? Rome literally crucified tens of thousands of people. And we know two names. We know why Spartacus' name made it out of history. How did the name Jesus make it out of the first century? And the answer is because something happened. Something happened that launched this movement known as the church. The foundation of what we believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is that something happened, not just something that was taught a long time ago. Jesus rose from the dead. And then he instructed his witnesses, these eyewitnesses, to talk about it. And the church launched around that good news that Jesus was who he said. He was the Holy One of God, the Messiah, and that man's primary obstacle in life, sin, had been defeated. And the ultimate penalty for sin, death, had been overcome. That's incredible news. And that's what launched the church. They launched as this multicultural, multiplying movement with a specific mission. And that was to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus. And from that day forward, for the last 2,000 years, there has always been a group that refused to let go of that ideal, that refused to let go of that. They refused to make it a building. But the majority has not. Never has. And the reason is the, the gravitational pull of the local church is always toward the reached rather than the unreached. That's, that's the bent. Think of it like this. If you had a boat that was big enough to have the GPS and the autopilot stuff, 
You can program in, I want to go to this place. And what will happen is the GPS will point you there. It will steer the boat in that direction. That's where it's going. If you decide, oh, look, there's this nice thing over there. I want to see it. You can grab the wheel and you can turn the wheel to get the boat to go in that direction. And here's what happens. The second you let it go, the wheel goes and it spins back and you're going this direction again. That's our problem. We have a bent. We have a gravitational pull towards focusing on the ones who are already reached instead of the unreached, of being. And here's how I want to describe it. Actually, I'm going to put this up on the screen because I want you to see it and not just hear it. Our problem is insiders versus outsiders. That's the problem of the church, and it has been for 2,000 years. And as you, if you know any church history, you know that the church has a history of becoming hostile to people who were outsiders. And there are some things in the church, in, in our, not our journey in our church history, but the church history over the last 2,000 years that are really embarrassing. They're, they're bad things as they became hostile to people who weren't part of them. They weren't the insiders. They weren't the reach. They were the outsiders. And, and I know that, that because I've experienced it way too often, that there are Christians who attend insider-focused churches that it's so easy to become insensitive to outsiders. You start to focus on your thing, and it's not that it's a bad thing, but you become insensitive to outsiders. And I've experienced this many times. In fact, when I was in college, um, I've told you this before, I was in this, this group that sang, and we would go to various churches on weekends and sing. And, and I remember going to this church one time, and, and it's it a smaller church, and, and we went in, and, and we were going to sing. They had a special seat for us near the back, and it was funny to me that, because that, they usually sat us up front, and it's like, I wonder why they sat us in the back. And it was because they were having communion that day. And they wanted to make sure that we didn't accidentally take communion with their members. Because this was for them. Very insider-focused, and Christians who attend insider-focused churches far too often become insensitive to outsiders. So hostile, insensitive, and this is one that many of you here have experienced. They become judgmental. As if they got it all together and you don't now. They become judgmental. Here's what I know. Most people who leave a local church to never return to church again don't leave because of theology. They leave because of how they were treated. The scary thing, we are not immune. We would be arrogant to think that we were immune to this. So, here's the $64,000 question. For you young ones, that's another old thing. Probably means nothing to you. How do we know? How do we know if we are slowly sliding towards becoming, you know, we're the good old church singing songs we like, talking about things we like to talk about? How do we know? You remember, I talked, I think even talked about last week, about sometimes... I offend people, and I never do that on purpose, but if I say what I'm supposed to say and you get offended, oh well, okay. Um, sometimes we get uncomfortable, so there may be some of you in here today that I need to kind of warn you ahead of time, buckle up. This is in your notes. You can, you can write this down if you're taking notes. How a church prays shows whether it has strayed. How a church prays shows whether it has strayed. And I would also say that how church people pray shows whether they have strayed. 
I want you for just a moment to think about your prayers. Think about what you've prayed for in the last 24 hours. Think about what you've prayed for in the last week. Who and what are those prayers mostly about? If you were honest, most people would say they're about you or your family or sick people you know. We pray mostly insider prayers. I want to let that sink in for just a minute. We pray mostly insider prayers. Do you know why your prayers sometimes can seem like they're just bouncing off the ceiling? No, no urgency or expectancy in your prayers. There's a lot of reasons, but one reason is because most of them, most of the things we pray for really don't require God's intervention. I know that sounds weird, but think about it for a minute. I know a lot of people, yeah, I'm praying for a good night's sleep. I need a good night's sleep, and I'm praying for that, and it's a prayer request. Would you all pray for that? And I think, Tylenol PM, there's a lot of different ways you can sleep, okay? I know that, that there's a lot of people who are praying for things. Um, uh, I want a safe trip home. The weather's bad. I want a safe trip home. And I think, okay, quit texting. Pay attention to the road. Don't drive when you're tired. We don't necessarily need God to intervene and make all that safe. You know, I want to have a good day at work today, Lord. And I can see God saying, then quit being a jerk. Be nice to people and your day will go better at work. I understand those things are not bad things to pray. All right. But I think of the things that we pray for and I say, no wonder we're bored and tired. And so is God. We're going to continue in our story that we started last week, the story of the church, because we don't want to look at what somebody thinks. We want to look at how did it really start? What did they really do? And so um, in a moment, we're going to be in Acts 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. The verses will be up on the screen and around your outline. But what we're going to look at today is the first recorded prayer of the first church, literally right after opening day. Now, I know they prayed other things, but this is the first recorded prayer and you remember at this point what they have? They have nothing. They have no buildings. They have no Bibles. They have no nothing. All they have is an excited group of Jesus followers. That's it. They understand that they're on the verge of being persecuted. It's not bad at this moment, but they can see the writing on the wall. They know what's coming. And here's the context. We talked a little bit about this last week. Day one. The day the church started, over 3,000 people embraced Jesus as the Messiah. There's lots of energy in that city because of that. Many of the guests in Jerusalem, you remember we talked about it was during, it was the day of uh, the Feast of Pentecost. There was these seven weeks, which is 49 days, and on the 50th day, that's what Pentecost means, on the 50th day, they would have this celebration, this feast, and people from all over would come for this, and that's the day that the church started, and so these people that came and found Jesus, they stayed. A few days later, literally, we're only talking a couple days, Peter and John go to the temple. They did this on a regular basis. They go to the temple to share about the resurrection with people and talk. And on the way in, they see a guy at the gate who is, it says he has been lame from birth. 
And he asks them for some money. He asks them for stuff. And, and they, say, they give their famous response. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. And in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And this guy who had been lame from birth is, is healed. And I think about that. And I think, I know a lot of people in my life who are lame. <laughs> Most of Some have been lame from birth. And it'd be really nice to have a healing there. And I know that when I said that first service, I could see it on people's faces. They're thinking, yeah, Tim, you're the one who's been lame. At that, the meaning was crippled. Okay? And the reason I say that is because there's a lot of things that happen in the name of healings in Jesus' name that you, you don't see it. It's like there was something inside and the doctors didn't know about it, you didn't know about it, but Jesus healed it. And it's like, how do I know that? Here's a guy who they had watched beg, could not walk for 40 years. He was over 40. And they said, get up and walk. And he got up and walked. That's a big deal. The city at that time, because of the feast, the festival, had swelled to probably 60 or 70,000 people. That means that within days, over 10% of the population had become followers of Jesus because people gathered to hear them preach. And they preached what they preached, the resurrection. And it says several thousand more believe. In fact, the way that it says in scriptures is at this time now, there were 5,000 men total. And that's one of the things they did back then. It's goofy, but it's one of the things they did. They counted the men. And it's like when Jesus fed the 5,000, it was 5,000 men. Well, they didn't go there alone. Most of them went there with their wife. And they had kids with them. So it wasn't 5,000, it was 10, 15,000 people. So they said there was 5,000 men total. We're not sure exactly how many people, but we know there's 5,000 men. And this is interesting to me. Because you know how we know that there was 5,000 men who were followers of Jesus now? It's not a real, you know, doesn't require a lot of brains to answer They counted. I have so many people talk to me when they say, you got a big church. I say, yeah, we got a big church and we want to be bigger. You know why? Because numbers represent people. And I've actually had people tell me, we don't count the people in our church. We don't take attendance. We don't count. And you know what I ask them? You count the offering? The answer is always, well, of course we count the offering. I said, so what you're saying is money is more important than people. Because we count people because people count. And from day one, they counted because every number represented a person who needed hope or had found hope. Now, you talk about that many people, that percentage of the population coming to Jesus within days, the temple leaders were, to put it mildly, they were disturbed because of all this resurrection talk. And one of the reasons is because it wasn't that long before this that those same leaders helped put Jesus to death. And now the talk is he's alive He's resurrected and everybody is talking about it and people are now following him and they didn't want that and so they took Peter and John, they arrested them and threw them in jail overnight. The next morning, they brought them out for questioning. So they're standing before them and, and they're, they know that they're in jail because they're talking about the resurrection. So it's time for Peter to say something in his defense and he preaches them a little sermon. You know what it was about? The resurrection. And he ends with this line. I think it's on your notes. In Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 12, here's how he ends his little message to them. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name 
under heaven by which we must be saved. They didn't accept that very well because that was not their religious belief. And you read that statement, it's like there's salvation and no one else. That's pretty bold. It's also pretty narrow. And a lot of people would say, well, that's really narrow. But no one ever made the claim that Jesus made. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to die for sin. I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to rise again in three days. And he did that. And they all saw him do that. And it says in verse 13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. I mean, they just got arrested for talking about the resurrection. And so what does he talk about? The resurrection. And it says they were amazed at their boldness. And here's why. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in scriptures. Now I want to stop there for just a minute. When it says no special training in scriptures, it means no formal education in that field. And, it, and it literally, the word is no letters. They had no letters. So they didn't have the letters after their name. They weren't the doctor so-and-so. They didn't have the master's degree. They didn't have this. They didn't have that. They were just people who had this, they had no formal training in this, but they spoke with this boldness. And it says they were ordinary men. Now, it's fascinating to me. Um, this is your Greek lesson for today. The word ordinary. When I say the Greek word, you're going to know right away what word we get from it. Okay? The word for ordinary, idiotes. <laughs> Here's my question. You might be like me. There have been way too many times in my life when I felt like just an ordinary man or idiot. <laughs> you know what that means? It means from the perspective of other people, seemingly less capable. They don't see a whole lot there. And they don't see a whole lot of potential. And they don't see what could happen. Seemingly less capable. It's where we get the word idiot. So I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I just felt like an ordinary man. And how could God use me? How could God do something for me? And maybe you felt like just an ordinary man or an ordinary woman or an ordinary student, seemingly less capable. Here's the key. The next phrase. They saw that they were ordinary men with no special training in scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. That's the key. Being with Jesus. Is education important? Absolutely. Is it the most important thing? No. I know a lot of smart, dumb people. Here's the key. God's Word. Being in God's Word, having that interaction and fellowship with Jesus every day. So that they look at you and they say, that's an ordinary guy. But we can see that they've been with Jesus. Because when you are with Jesus, it changes you. You can have a whole bunch of knowledge. That doesn't change you. You need the knowledge. But that doesn't change you. What changes you is being with Jesus. And here's the thing. Some of you, some of you think, I'm just that ordinary man, that ordinary woman, that ordinary student. Nothing's going to happen for me. Because my life is so screwed up. Here's what I know. Jesus changes us from the inside out. You look at the outside and say, yeah, that's not going to change. And I, and I would say, yeah, it's probably not going to change right instantly. 
because it took you a long time to get there and it might take a long time to get out of there. But here's what I know. If you are one of the ones who follows Jesus and are with him daily, here's what will happen. A year from today, you'll look back on where you were and where you are and you will see the change. It will be like the, the weather guy I read yesterday. This is a quote from the weather guy yesterday. The high was 66 degrees on this date last year and 72 degrees on Sunday. That's the difference the year makes. (laughs) Remember riding my motorcycle last year. It's like, that's not happening this year. You can look back on your life and realize that's the difference a year makes. It's it's not, the, the change inside is instant. It takes a while for him to work it out from the inside out. But when you are with him daily, that can happen. And it says in verse 14, but since they could see the man who had been healed, the guy who had been crippled from birth, the 40-some-year-old guy, because they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, something he had never done his whole life, standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. I love that. There are people who are going to doubt that you're a follower of Jesus. And what will happen is, in time, they'll see you standing. And they'll realize there's nothing we can say because we see this changed life. We see what God has done. And because of public pressure, um, the the religious council, the temple, temple leaders, they didn't punish them. They just threatened them and warned them to keep their message to themselves. Don't talk about this resurrection stuff anymore. And then they let him go. And so Peter and John then, they kind of beat cheeks and they hurried back to where the core group was gathered because they're, they're obviously concerned and worried about what's going to happen because the temple leaders who arrested them had just a short time before that arrested Jesus and crucified him. And so the group is, is like expecting the worst here. And so Peter and John run back to him and they report what happened to the group. They tell them what happened, and the group's response is that they pray. And, and this is just days after the church started. Luke records for us the essence of that prayer. The first prayer recorded that the church prays. So here's my question before I jump into that. This is how the first church, the first century Christians prayed that very first time. In those circumstances, how would you have prayed? Because if you're like me, most of us would have prayed for protection, because the persecution's starting. Most of us would have prayed for safety. Most of us would have prayed for things like that. Here's what they did, starting in verse 24. So they told them the story. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And here's their prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the seas, everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That was written by David. I think it's Psalm 2. It was written a thousand years before Jesus came. And they said, the kings, the leaders are going to rise up against the anointed one, the Messiah. That's Jesus. And they said then in their prayer, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city. They all got together to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
the anointed one, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, God, we know that you've got this. Here's what happened. Here's what's happening now, but we know that you've got this. Here's their request. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That blows my mind. It wasn't, oh, protect us, the bad guys are coming. It's, we just got arrested for speaking. Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, with great courage, with great confidence. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That was their prayer. In contrast to our prayers. Help me, protect me, bless me, give to me. I'm not saying it's wrong to ask for those things. We are commanded in Scripture over and over and by Jesus to ask for those things. I'm not saying we should not. I'm saying, in addition to that, when was the last time you prayed for boldness? When was the last time, instead of praying that your situation would change, you prayed that God would give you the strength and the power and the boldness in that situation so that out of that situation, they would not see you, they would see Jesus. That you prayed that your life would draw attention to your Savior. When was the last time we prayed like that? You see, what happens is we pray little prayers. And so very little happens. In verse 31, it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting, I love this, was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. What's that last word? Boldly. You see what happened? God literally rocked their world and he answered their prayer. And then it's fascinating to me. Luke can't help but draw attention to something that nobody would have anticipated. In fact, if you didn't know this ahead of time, if you hadn't read ahead to discover this, you wouldn't have guessed what was next. Something seemingly disconnected. A case of generosity broke out. It says, next verse, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So he says, you know, we prayed, we prayed for boldness. God rocked the house. We spoke with boldness. And then this generosity thing happened. And then he goes right back to the matter at hand and about boldly testifying about the resurrection before he gives a little more details about the generosity. It says next verse, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus because that's the, the bottom line of everything. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, here's the thing. They were not generous with their stuff because someone told them to be. They were generous with their stuff because they couldn't help themselves. That's just what God did. There was a natural and a powerful connection between their boldness and their generosity. Their money followed their prayers. You know what? Your money follows your prayers. Here's the deal. 
I don't want us to be a big church that prays small prayers. Things we really don't even need God for. I believe we dishonor God with little prayers. Because it takes no faith. It's very easy to pray for things that we can accomplish. It's tougher when you step out and you pray for something that if God doesn't come through, you look like an idiot. Because if God tells us to do that, it takes faith. And we step out to do that. So beginning today, I want you to start praying for boldness. Not instead of what you pray for. I'm not saying stop the other. I'm saying in addition to what you pray for. And as you're praying, if you feel led, I would say maybe you need to pray for the second half of that prayer as well about the generosity thing. And if that makes you feel a tad uncomfortable, maybe it's because your prayers have been too small, too tame, to you, and not enough God. And maybe our prayers have not been big enough, or, or bold enough, or brave enough, or broad enough, or just bad enough. This is not there. So let me be bold with you. Chances are, if you pray like most Christians, if everything that you prayed for so far this year, God answered. If God answered everything that you prayed for so far in way too many people's lives, the only difference it would have made is in your life or in your family's life. And maybe, you know, some of you would be married. Some of your kids would have better grades. You'd have a better job, you know. Um, your, your relatives would be healed. All those things are good things. I'm not saying they're, they're bad things. But if God answered all your prayers and the only people who benefited were you and your family... Although good, that's not very big. That's not very bold. In fact, that's how Christians get small, insider-focused, off-mission. It's not that they're bad things, but it takes us and it causes us to drift. Their boldness back then was what got the message of Jesus out of the first century. Can you imagine if they'd have just huddled together and prayed for safety from persecution? We'd never heard about the church again. We wouldn't have what we have. We wouldn't have hope. But they didn't do that. They were bold and got that message out, and it got them into some trouble. That's actually where we're going to pick up the story next week. And I might even talk about some stories of present-day boldness. But in the meantime, I want you to begin praying bigger, bolder, God-honoring prayers. Because we are the church for this generation. And that's how we've been called to pray. So, let's get awkward. I'm not kidding. I'm going to do something we don't normally do here. I'm going to ask you to stand. Now, if you're visiting, if you're a guest with us today, we don't normally do this. We, we are normally weird, but we don't normally do this. I'm going to ask you, standing here in front of everybody, to out loud pray the same prayer that they prayed 2,000 years ago for that boldness and for what Jesus can do in and through your life. And so if you're just a guest and you're visiting with us today, don't feel like you have to do this. If you, if you feel odd or awkward, you can just move your mouth or, you know... 
watermelon, watermelon. That's what you say, watermelon, watermelon, when you, when you don't know the words to something and it looks like you do. That's perfectly okay. But if this is something that you believe that God is nudging you for, I'm going to ask that we all do this out loud and pray this prayer because I think this is a big deal. So I'm going to put it up on the screen and I want you to do this out loud with me. Are you ready? Enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Do you believe that? Because he can do that. He can take ordinary idiotes. (laughs) And he can do extraordinary things because then people will look and say, wow, you're amazing. No, they'll look and say, you're just an ordinary guy. Look what Jesus did. That's the kind of prayers he wants us to have. As you're standing, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Close your eyes as we pray. Father, I know that there's some people here who came in here that um, they, they knew the church and the religion thing, but they didn't know about this personal relationship with, with a Jesus who was raised from the dead, who did what he did for them, died for them to defeat the, the power of sin and the power of death, and that by simply turning from our sin to you, acknowledging that, repenting, turning to you and saying, Jesus, I believe that what you did was for me. I know that I can't do this on my own and I want that same resurrection power that raised you from the dead to be in my life, to help me, to change me so that with boldness, I can live my life in such a way that it will point people to Jesus. And Father, I know that there's people here that they've made that decision a long time ago. They've stepped across that line from unbelief to belief. They've claimed Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they've been praying insider prayers. They've been praying self-centered inside things and not others outward focused. That we've been too concerned for too long about the reached instead of the unreached. And I pray that like that first group of people, that our response would be, our natural response would be, we pray for boldness to speak your word so that we would see you do amazing things and it would point people to Jesus. And I pray that by doing that, you would change our hearts. Keep us from drifting that, that direction that, that doesn't share that message. Father, we ask this in your name because you demonstrated 2,000 years ago you can do it, and we ask you to do it again. We love you. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
That was the absolute perfect song to close that on. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead can be in your life to accomplish God's purposes through you. I know that some of you have felt like just ordinary men, ordinary women, ordinary kids. You know, maybe like me, you've also felt like the idiotes way too often. That's seemingly less capable, but that's not in Jesus' eyes. In his eyes, by being with him, people will look and say, yeah, that person's ordinary, but there's something different, and they'll see that they've been with Jesus. If you've ever felt like an outsider, maybe you feel like an outsider now, here's what you need to know. Jesus wanted to bring you into his family so much that he died to make a way in for you. So that by believing that what he said was true, what he did happened. He died for you, he was buried, and he rose again for you. By claiming Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can have that same power that raised him from the dead living inside you. And as you spend time with him and his word every day, that growth happens. The change happens from the inside out. And you'll look back and you'll see the change, and just as importantly, the people around you will see that as well. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and I'm just going to simply pray what we prayed a few moments ago. Father, Enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.